All right, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, just in time for the holidays, baking legend Dory Greenspan gets on the phone with our own Claire Saffitz. Uh, Dory has published 12 cookbooks, won five James Beard Awards, and splits her time between New York City, Connecticut, and Paris. It was in this last city, Paris, that she first discovered a deep love of butter. Uh, which is the subject of her new Short Stack book. For those of you who don't know Short Stack, uh, they're sort of like little mini pocket-sized cookbooks full of recipes written by a single author on a single ingredient, and they're awesome. You should check them out, Short Stack. Claire and Dory chat about all things butter and holiday baking. And then our own wine columnist, Marissa Ross, is in town from L.A., and she gives me some natural wine recommendations for the holidays. Before we jump in, I want to tell you guys about a very cool charity initiative called Cook, Gather, Give uh, that Bon Appetit launched a few weeks ago with Cherry Bomb, Food and Wine, Cooking Light, and Sever. The concept is pretty simple. Uh, we are asking our readers, users, fans, and you guys, our listeners, uh, to host dinner parties during the holiday season. And when someone asks, like, hey, what can I bring? Can I bring some wine? You say no, but you can give to a charity of your choice. So basically, everyone signs on to give to a particular charity, a particular amount, and that's your sort of your dinner party. It's your charity dinner party. You're giving back while eating well. Now, there's more information on a site we created called cookgathergive.com. You can check out the landing page, post photos on social media with the hashtag cookgathergive, and we will do our best to promote your meals and images. You can also share them by emailing us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we love to hear from you guys. All right, let's do this. Here is Claire and Dory. So we have you on the phone. Um, where are you calling from? I'm in Westbrook, Connecticut, which is along the shoreline of, of, of Connecticut. I am looking out at a pond that is just, it almost has waves because it's so windy here today. Uh-huh. And so you split your time between New York City and Connecticut and Paris, correct? Yes, and I pinch myself when I say yes. <laughs> when I'm curious when you were last in Paris because I've been reading about the butter shortages they've been having there, and I, I feel very concerned. Well, I'm really concerned. So I was there in September, and and butter was fine. And now I'm going back mid December, and it's so. And I'm wondering if I should bring butter. So I always bring butter back from Paris because because the butter is wonderful. Uh-huh. It's um, it's very easy to find cultured butter in in France, and cultured butter is we can find some of it now much more easily now in America than we used to be able to. So Vermont Creamery makes cultured butter. Strauss Farms in California makes cultured butter. Mm-hmm. Cultured butter is butter where the cream is left to ferment. Imagine kind of yogurtizing butter um, and before it's churned. So it has a little bit more acid and and a tartness to it. It is so delicious. Plus, French butter. Stop me when you go. I just, I love butter. No, go, go uh, on, go on. Okay. So, and plus, European butter, by law, has more butter fat than American butter. Right. That's, that's so, like, it has to be, is it 83% at least? 
or 82? 82. Um, and so, and we're at 80. And there, there are American butters that have higher butter fat content, but in general, the it sounds funny to say it, but the butter in France is richer. And so I often bring butter back. I bring butter that has, bring back butter that has salt crystals in it, so cell gris or fleur de sel in it. And now I'm thinking that, in fact, I'm going to have to reverse this, <laughs> this <laughs> butter this, this, this butter passage. Right, for the first time in history. Butter, and bring butter with me. I used to bring, I used to bring American butter with me if I was going to be testing recipes in France. I never publish a recipe that hasn't been tested um, in America, but if I were going to be creating recipes that I would later want to test back here, I would bring American butter with me. Uh-huh. Do you, yeah, and do you notice a big, a big difference when you're testing recipes between a European and an American butter? There's more difference in, in taste. And there's some difference, obviously, in texture because of the the richness of, of, of European butter. But the recipes work with both American and European butter. Uh-huh. It really feels like in the last five years um, in the U.S., there's been a really explosion in sort of higher quality butters that um, dairies are then making a European style butter and even a cultured butter. I noticed on the shelves at the supermarket um, last weekend that I think it's, I'm trying to remember which dairy, it maybe was Organic Valley that has a cultured grass-fed butter that just comes, you know, in, in pound packages. And I tried it and I was really, really impressed. And it feels like that's relatively new here. I think it is new. I'm seeing it even where I am in Connecticut, where there are very few specialty shops and um, and big chain, you know, many big chain um, supermarkets. The butter section has grown, and it's. I also am seeing more local butters, which is very exciting. Yeah, I became interested in butter years ago. You know, I've been a baker for for a long, long time, and I've always used regular butter. Um, I was in France, it's got to be almost 20 years ago, and I was having a conversation with Lionel Poilin, who is probably France's best-known bread baker. His daughter is now carrying on that tradition. But I wanted a recipe from him for his little butter cookies, little sugar cookies, shortbread cookies, I was working on my book, Paris Sweet, and I'd known Lionel for a long time, and he'd always been, you know, very generous with me and very helpful, and I asked him for the recipe, and he said no. He said, you can't make it. And I had just finished working with Pierre Hermé and made, you know, 100 complicated French recipes. Why did he think I couldn't make his tiny little butter cookies? (laughs) And so I said, oh, I, I, I think I could. I mean, you could show me how to make them. I think I can do them. And he said, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with your capability. He said, you just don't have good butter. That feels like a very French response. <laughs> well, it set, it, it, he then, because of that, he set me, on this, set me off on this butter quest. Um, and it's really from that time that I got super interested in butter and differences among butters. To just finish that cookie story, I came back to him about two months after that with Land O'Lakes um, butter, 
regular flour and I let him provide the sugar and, you know, regular American flour. I let him provide the sugar and the egg. And we made the cookies and he declared them good enough for him to allow me to use the recipe in my book. Uh So, you know, three cheers for American butter. But he got me really interested in butter. And I did um, a butter tasting of 15 different butters. And it was fascinating. And for anybody who has the least bit of interest in butter, this is really a fun Sunday afternoon project. (laughs) I just bought, um, I had a bunch of other bakers with me, and I bought every butter that I could find. And we tasted it, sometimes just off a knife, sometimes on a little plain water cracker. And, And then we baked three pound cakes. Um, with our three favorite butters. And it's really a fascinating thing to do. You can tell the difference. You can feel the difference um, among some of the butters in your mouth, the way they melt, the way they, they, they coat your mouth, the way the flavor lingers. I think people don't really realize that, I mean, butter, I think, is more of a living product than people kind of give it credit for. And when you taste a butter made from grass-fed dairy, you, you really taste that grassiness. It really has so much variance in quality. Um, I think people don't realize it when they're when they're baking. They just think it's, oh, sort of another pantry item, you know. And I have to say, I, I felt that way, too. I yeah. mean, you know, butter, flour, sugar, eggs, you make a cake. Right. Right. And, and, you, can, and you can still do that, and you can make a delicious cake. But it is fun to 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 know a little bit more about that ingredient. And Claire, I love when you called it a living ingredient. So yeah. when, when you're at home, do you have, whether, he, whether you're um, here in the U.S. or you're in Paris, do you have like an everyday brand of butter and then like a special occasion butter that you get out? Well, so I, I use, um, for my baking, I use either Land O'Lakes or Cabot butter. Because I'm looking for a butter that, well, Land O'Lakes is nationally available. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still baking with products that I know everybody can get so that the recipes that I test and that I know work in my kitchen, I can have confidence that they'll work in everybody else's kitchen as well. Right, right. Um, I keep Kerrygold salted butter. That's breakfast butter. I have... Vermont Creamery's butter with salt crystals, with sea salt. Mm-hmm. And I have French butter that it's, <laughs> I'm now hoarding it, <laughs> but it's in, it's, in, it's, in the, it's in the freezer. Got it, got it. So I want to just jump back to something you mentioned earlier when you were telling the story about the, the butter cookies from Poilin. You mentioned Pierre Hermé, who yes. I think many people know, he's, I would say, arguably the most famous pastry chef in France. Um, can you talk about when you met him and how you came to work with him on, was his first book, is that right? I met him, when did I meet him? We we can never quite figure out when it was, but it was sometime in the early 90s. I was writing a story for the New York Times about chestnuts, and I, wa- I was in Paris, and I wanted to know how marron glacé, those candy chestnuts, were made. And I called Fauchon. And they said, you'll have to speak to the pastry chef. And that was Pierre Hermé. And I went to see him, and I kind of dragged my husband along. I said, oh, it'll only be 15 minutes. You know, just grab a cup of coffee. Right. I'll be back. And Pierre and I had to get Michael because the conversation lasted two hours. We <laughs> had 
so it was we had so much to talk about. I never found out about Marron Glacé. But, <laughs> but but I got to meet Pierre and I got to learn about the things he was working on and we just kept in touch and after i finished writing baking with julia um which was the book that accompanied julia child's pbs series i was thinking you know with this kind of a letdown after you've worked with julia what do you want to do you know what's next and michael my husband said to me you know why don't you see if pierre's interested in writing a book I called him and I said, this is kind of crazy, but actually I faxed him, it was that time. Um, I said, this is kind of crazy and it might come as a surprise to you, but I was thinking we should write a book together. And he he called me back and he said, oh, I always knew we were going to do it. Let's start. <laughs> so that was the first book and actually the only book, book well, we did two actually, but our two, Desserts by Pierre Hermé and Chocolate Desserts by Pierre Hermé, were the only two books that were written specifically for America. So they were original in English books. They, uh-huh. they, they were later translated to French, into French. I learned so much working with him. Can you remember or, or think back to a certain piece of baking advice or wisdom that he gave to you that really stuck with you? Um, there, are little, there are little tricks, so to speak, that he taught me that I, I do all the time and I've passed along and, um, you know, to others. The lemon trick. Anytime you're using citrus in a recipe with, that has sugar um, or if you're using vanilla bean with sugar, you grate the rind, the zest, into the sugar and then use your hands to, to. I'm making these motions, but you can't uh-huh. see them, to rub the two ingredients together. And so that way all the volatile oils from the citrus zest go into the sugar and it's like you get double the amount of, of flavor. But you know, I started working with Pierre in the 90s and he was using fleur de sel and I had to define it every time I even mentioned it. I'll define it again. It's a French sea salt um, originally coming from from Brittany, although now it's being harvested in many other places. Um, But he used fleur de sel and he used salt. This seems like so everyday now, but I remember him saying to me to think about salt in pastry the way you think about it in savory um, cooking, that it's a seasoning, that salt brings up other flavors. It brings up the flavor of chocolate, of brown butter, of regular butter, um, of caramel, that it's it's a lifter-upper of, of flavor. And he always used just a little bit more salt than we were accustomed to seeing in baking recipes at that time. Yeah, so that brings up for me the very famous recipe and truly one of my favorite recipes of all time, which is the, the what you termed world peace cookies. I was on a podcast with our editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport, um, talking about holiday baking and how that is hands down every year. I mean, I make it multiple times a year, but especially during the holidays. And they are these unbelievably good chocolate sable cookies that you form into logs. And I've never tried a cookie that beats that recipe. It's just... I mean, how do you make it all the time? You you must have it committed to memory. I make it all the time. It's the most amazing cookie, and really, when you think about it, 
Why should it be so amazing? It's a mystery. So it's butter, brown sugar, and 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 white sugar. No eggs. Um, flour and cocoa, chopped chocolate and fleur de sel. So it's like a chocolate chocolate chip cookie, but it's not. And it's like a shortbread, but it's not. I remember when Pierre gave me the recipe for that. So I published it originally in Paris Sweets. He had developed the cookie for a restaurant called Corova in Paris. And um, that restaurant came and went very quickly, but the cookie lives on. And I looked at it. And I said, kind of like the American chocolate chip cookie. And he said, kind of, but it's not. It's just slightly chewy, but a little crunchy around the edges. The salt is such a surprise. And even a surprise, you know, and it's even a surprise now when we're accustomed to sweet things being slightly salty. Mm-hmm. It's just this mysteriously marvelous cookie. It is. And... I published it again in Baking from My Home to Yours. I wasn't going to, but I ran into a neighbor of mine in New York, and he was telling me that he made the chocolate cookies and loved them, but he never called them Corova cookies. Um, He called them world peace cookies because if everyone in the world had these cookies, there would be peace. (laughs) And I loved that story so much, and I loved the name that I, I republished it, and somebody said to me, oh, well, the cookie can't be better than the name. And I thought, well, yeah, it could be. It is. <laughs> right. It's really one of those perfect recipes where every single ingredient strikes a perfect balance, and it, it produces something that is truly greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, I, I can't say enough about how good it is. And I've, I've given that recipe to so many people and said, just make these. They're not hard. You probably have all the ingredients. And every person writes back and says, wow, this, is, this one really like, takes high honors. It's the thank you cookie. <laughs> yes, yes. So, I mean, I make those every, for the holidays. I bring them to parties. Um, do you have any holiday baking traditions of your own? Are there any recipes that you make every year around the holidays that you, your family can't live without? I bake cookies a lot. <laughs> and um, and I, we had, you know, I used to make ginger, ginger snap cookies, and I used to make, I still make um, butter cookies, vanilla cookies. In fact, the recipe that's in the short stack is one that I often make just called vanilla butter cookie. Um, when I was working on um, my cookie book, I included a chapter that had all of the recipes from a cookie business that my son Joshua and I had started called Burn Cell. And it turns out that, that those have become my holiday cookies because those are the cookies that when Joshua, my son, and I started the business, we only made cookies that we both really, really loved. And so those are my holiday cookies because those are the cookies that my family loves. The jammers are, I think, among my favorite. Yeah, they're among my favorite cookies. So it's a vanilla shortbread cookie, a vanilla sable with a little bit of jam in the center and um, a streusel around the edge. So you have, it almost looks like 
like a little jam tart. Actually, those cookies were on the cover of Bon Appetit. We had, yeah, we, we had um, yeah. your uh, Speculus cookies also a couple, several, I don't remember mm-hmm. what year it was. Um, those are good and perfect for the holidays. Yeah, uh, you get all those to all those toasty spice flavors, which are, you know, sort of s- scream holidays to everyone. And I think anytime you have jam and streusel together, that feels very, like, very holiday-y, very festive. Is there ever a time when we don't want jam and <laughs> or streusel? No. Right. But, um, little, little Linzer cookies, little in, in, in my cookie book, I call them little rascals because um, I was so excited to learn that the cookies of my childhood, which were called Spitzbuben, which was a funny name anyway, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but actually translated to little rascals. So like world peace cookies, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I, I fell in love with the name, but essentially a nut cookie, a rolled a rolled out cookie, and you sandwich it with um, it's it's nuts and spice and sandwich with jam. So I want to ask you because I think well I'm very curious to know and I think probably some of our listeners are curious to know because you spend time in Paris and New York. Do you have a favorite place for bread or pastries um, when you're in Paris? Yes, many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have a I don't have a favorite. So in Paris, I live in the sixth arrondissement. I live in Saint Germain des Prés. And I kind of think that they should, like, rename that that area. It should be like, oh, like Sugar Plum Central. Or like, it's just there are so many fabulous pastry shops, and they're just, like, one next to another. So, of course, there's – well, Pierre Hermé is in that neighborhood, and so, of course, that's a, a shop I, I go to for pastries. Um Pierre Marcolini has a chocolate shop there. Michelin, Christophe Michelin just opened um, a pastry shop. The whole time that I'm in Paris, I could have a different pastry every day and not go further than, um, you know, two blocks. <laughs> right, it, it's right. A pretty, yeah, I, I would say I moved to that neighborhood for that reason, but I only just discovered that it was so fabulous after after we had moved. And then um, Holland for bread, Eric Kaiser Kayser, so who's who now has shops all over um, America. We buy his his baguette with sesame seeds and the one that has um, that's kind of not pointy. I think it's called the monge. I bake a lot when I'm in Paris, but I do buy something sweet every day because the pastries are so exciting. They're beautifully made. They look beautiful. And there's always, even even pastries that I know really well, when you go to a new shop and you taste it, there's always something a little different. There's always like something you kind of learn about the pastry when you taste a new one. We, I want to get to the lightning round, which um, we'll do in a minute. But I just have a couple. I have w- just a couple questions that I want to end on. Um, one is, do you have a favorite tool when you're baking in the kitchen? And um, what advice would you give to a new baker or someone who's just starting out and wants to get better at baking? I have a lot of tools. I'm kind of a little nutty about gadgets and tools, but my basic tools are um, are 
they're really important to me. And there are times when I'm working, and you know, as I said, I've been doing this for a long time, and yet there are times when I'm working when I have just the right tool for the job that I actually stop and smile and think, this is perfect. It's so wonderful. It feels good to have a good tool. I have a rolling pin that I'm in love with. It's a French pin, which means that it doesn't have handles. Um, rolling pins with handles, heavy ones, are better for bread than they are for pastry. I find that I don't have the control, as much control as I want, with a heavy pin and with one with handles. So it's it's not tapered. Mine is made of nylon, and it's a perfect weight for pastry. It's heavy, but not really, really heavy. And I can get great control from the fact that it, I can I can put my hands anywhere on it um, and and move it easily. I love that pen. I love having parchment paper in the kitchen. So I roll all my dough between parchment. It means I don't have to add flour to my dough and nothing sticks. So between parchment and my rolling pen, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for cookie season. <laughs> right. As right. For, which, which I think of as any season, but certainly we're heading into the time when even people who never bake cookies will bake for the holidays. And as for advice for a new baker, bake, 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 bake. The more you bake, the better you get at it, the more confident um, you are, the more you enjoy it. I find baking a pleasure. I love everything about it. I love the feel of the ingredients. I love the the fragrance of ingredients as they're baking. I love the transformation, the magic, really, because, you know, butterflower, sugar, eggs, I said could be a cake, but it could be a thousand things. Um, I love the pleasure of sharing. I mean, when we bake, we bake not for ourselves usually, but to share. And... As a new baker, I know that, I'm not sure why, but I know that people do get anxious about baking. I actually think baking is easier than cooking because with baking, if you follow a good recipe, you don't have to make those kind of judgment calls that you do in cooking. There's no season to taste. There's, <laughs> there are no questions about, you know, cook between 15 and 25 minutes. You know, you really know, you know, baking... Baking, if you follow the recipe, and it's a good recipe, you've got a really great chance of being successful. But I know that people are anxious about baking in the beginning. Just keep doing it because you want to get to that point and you get there quickly where you're just enjoying what you're doing. Uh, well, I think that's a great uh, note to conclude on, and I want to proceed to the lightning round which is a series of rapid-fire questions. It's either or. Um, So I hope you're ready. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) I feel like (laughs) the anxious baker that I just described, I'm like the anxious answerer. This will be fun, I promise. It's it's still relatively low pressure. Espresso or drip coffee? Espresso. Fruit dessert or chocolate dessert? Oh, wait a second. The first one was easy. The second one, not as easy. (laughs) Oh, I want both. Chocolate. Okay. Scrambled eggs or poached eggs? Poached. Salted chocolate or salted caramel? Oh, come on. (laughs) 
Oh, come on. Yeah, that one That one I had an idea. Uh, uh, salted chocolate. Okay, so with a pie, whipped cream or ice cream? Ice cream. Roast chicken or steak frites? Roast chicken. Perfect croissant or perfect chocolate chip cookie? Perfect chocolate chip cookie. And then, okay, so this last one, we ask everyone on the podcast. In your case, it seems a little silly, but it's butter or olive oil. Oh, butter. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that one was easy. <laughs> a very, a very appropriate note to end on. Um, well, Dory Greenspan, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Claire, it was great to talk to you. Marissa Ross, welcome back to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, holidays are upon us, which yes. means uh, it's time to drink wine. Yeah, you need to drink wine. <laughs> you need to. At least uh, in my family, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I want to do. Um, I want to go through uh, a variety of situations, occasions, scenarios, and okay. I want you to recommend uh, either a specific bottle or a type of bottle for each scenario. Great. All right. I can do that. You can do that? Are we ready? I would hope so. That's what kind of what you pay me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Every couple of years, uh, Simone, my wife, and I, we, we throw a holiday party. It's kind of one of those things like you just invite everyone, and then next thing you know, you have like 100 people in your house. Oh, yeah. And like you don't even get to talk to half the people, <laughs> and you're like, why do we invite so many people? And then it's, <laughs> it's because you always think that people aren't going to come, well, and exactly. get nervous, and then, yeah, it's it, always backfires. So when you're prepping for a party like this, like let's say, okay, so big holiday party, kind of a house party, I want some sort of sparkly wine to suggest the holidays, the festivities, but, but I'm not buying $60 bottles of champagne. So if I want to buy a case of something sparkly for a big party, what would you recommend? I would definitely recommend getting a Petit Naturel, um, which we've spoken about at length. What uh, some of us call a pet nat. Yeah, pet nat. What's your sort of one-line description of a pet nat? So um, Petit Naturel is a totally naturally made... Um, sparkling wine what most people don't realize is that most sparkling wines go through two fermentations and the first fermentation is to you know get it alcoholic make mm -hmm. the base wine and then the second fermentation they add sugar and they add yeast to put it through fermentation again to make it um, carbonated but with uh, petulant natural what they do is they take the base wine halfway through the fermentation and put a crown cap on it and then basically just pray that it bubbles so it's a risky, it's a risky kind of winemaking, but it's delicious. I've I've come I've come around, as you know, and I'm a, I'm a big Pet Nat fan because I wouldn't I don't know if I'd call them a sparkling wine. They're more of like a fizzy wine. They They're can not, go either way, yeah. They don't usually have the size of like bubbles and carbonation that a, that a champagne no. will. With you when you when you pour champagne into the flute and you see the bu bubbles rising. Yeah, those up, like you know? beady, like yeah. kind of harder bubbles. Yeah, these these are softer, um, almost more like a frizzante. Yeah, or um, I, is it? Could I say it's kind of more akin to like like a bottle cider yeah you could say that i yeah. think it, it also really depends on the the pet the pet nat because sometimes you know they're really the bubbles are really soft because of whatever happened with the fermentation because yeah. they can't really control no, it exactly. and then other times they explode um i've almost taken out multiple people's eyes really yeah you should oh just make sure that you open up pet nats over a sink in a way you know, pointed away from everyone's eyes. There's this one, I'm not going to name any names because I, I actually really enjoy the winery, but the they have this pet gnat um, from France that I swear every time I open it, it shoots like into my neighbor's yard. It has so much velocity. <laughs> okay, see, all right, so that's a cork one, but aren't a lot of pet gnats just have like a like a, like a beer top? Like you, yeah. You open it with a bottle They can be opener? both. They can be yeah. both. So 
I want to get a pet net for the party, get a case. Can you like, give me a price range for like a decent pet net? The thing is you're still going to be paying at least 20 bucks a bottle for a decent pet net. Yeah, but that's better that's than better. a decent bottle of champagne for oh, 60 bucks. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that you can get really great Petalent Naturels like under 25 bucks very easily. Um, the one that I'm really into right now is from Sebastian uh, Bobinet, and it's called a Dubrififi. Okay, you're going to have to spell Bobinet. It's B O B I N E T. Ooh, good voice. <laughs> now, and where is these, this wine from? Uh, this wine is from the Loire, okay. and um, in France, and it's a Chenin, um, a Chenin Blanc. And um, the reason I really like it, especially for the holidays too. Um, so Chenin Blanc has wide range of flavors. It can kind of lean sweet sometimes, and other times it can be very dry. I find um, the Dourififi. Um, kind of just like right in the middle it has enough residual sugar to where it feels it, it just has like a little bit of um it, it tastes like lemon bars to me do you know the price on that about it's a it's under it's it's around 25 bucks okay. i believe because i bought it and i i try to buy and even the wines that i review for the magazine i try to keep them all like under 30 cool looking label great label really great font they have good uh, fonts on it it's um just no. Um, it looks hand done. I mean, it's okay. not actually hand done, I don't think, but um, it's like a black label with really cool um, dark blue periwinkle Ooh. sort of uh, All right. fonting on it. It's nice. All right, so I'm getting some some pet nat, about 20, 25 a bottle uh, for my rager. But let's say this year, Simone and I were like, you know what? We're not inviting 150 people. We're going like, to pare it down to like 30 people, and it's going to be a very elegant cocktail soiree. And I want to buy six bottles of a nice champagne perhaps or a nice yeah, sparkling wine. Yeah. I feel like you have to go champagne. I, I I every year I go through this where I'm like, "Oh, I got to think of something more original than champagne." But the truth is champagne is champagne because it's champagne and yeah. it's amazing. And if you're ever going to buy some nice bottles of champagne, the holidays are when. Absolutely. This is the time to do it. Um, you know, it makes people feel really special and happy and and just excited, and champagne just elevates everything. A lot of us will go with the big makers. You'll see the orange label of the Veuve Clicquot. Maybe if you have some more cash, you'll buy a Krug or a, you know less cash, you'll get a Moet. I imagine you're going to recommend something a little bit more off the radar. Yeah. I always think when, um, I mean, for all wines, I think that you should be going and shopping at wine shops. I think that that's really important, and especially because, especially with champagne, um, in all wine, it's really not the price that always is the most important part. Like you can spend a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine, and that doesn't make it better than a seventy-five yeah. or sixty-dollar bottle of wine. So I always think it's really important, especially with champagne, to go into a wine shop and make sure you're talking to people about you know what you want um, out of your champagne and, and your price range. My favorite champagne. I'm gonna butcher the name. Chateau Tellier. But for the readers at home, if you guys can pronounce it, C H A R T O G N E, like. Mm -hmm. Like Gascogne, yeah, yeah, like Gagne, or, but, or like Bourgognon, Bourgognon, Chateaune, Taille, T A I L L E T. Okay, and Taille. is it is this what we call like a grower champagne? It is a grower champagne. And yeah. What is a grower champagne so exactly? What most people don't realize about the champagne houses is that they source grapes from many, many different vineyards, mm. and then they make the wine off site. And it's not generally made by the people that are growing the grapes. Okay. Like the stuff that you see in the orange bottles and those sorts of things. Um, it's not like a dude owns that vineyard and harvests the grapes and then goes and makes his champagne. It's all kind of outsourced in all these different 
like throughout these different vineyards and kind of properties and things. With a grower champagne, it's it is one person on his land making his champagne or her land or her land. Yes, yeah. So th- it's all done on site by one person. Oh, cool. I mean, I'm sure that they have a crew of people. I doubt that these yeah. people do it. So all is it if if it is a grower champagne, is it? typically one varietal of grape or is it a mix it can still be a mix okay um it just depends i mean champagne because they can use um chardonnay and pinot noir and yeah. things like that so but it's all done on on the same oh property. you know you know what champagne phrase i like what blanc de blanc means oh, yeah. it's a white champagne with only white grapes because a lot of champagnes yes. are made with red grapes as it's, you mentioned yes, pinot noir, exactly. for instance. yeah but, and they remove the skins at some point. Exactly. They um, well, they just press it because uh, the, the, oh, I think a lot of people don't realize that what gives, you know, wine its color is the skin. So basically, they just press the Pinot Noir and then they they just uh, they without the skins. All right. So about how much is a bottle of this Chardonnay Taille? I feel like that's around a hundred. Wow. Ooh, or wow. Seventy-five. Baller. Okay. It's so a, it's it was a, it was actually this was the champagne that I had. Um, for my wedding. So these 30 guests at the Rappobuck yeah, maybe uh, I went holiday a little high. soiree are going to be treated. All right, next category. Uh, Carla Lolly Music, our food director, every year she talks about making a feast of the seven fishes, yes. which is a classic Italian holiday tradition with a whole seafood feast of, of seven different courses. I never get invited, but let's say that Carla invites me this year. And I want to show my appreciation for the invitation. And Absolutely. I want to show up with a really nice bottle of something, preferably Italian, seafood-friendly. What what might I bring? Um, I would recommend a, a, it's um, the Cola Capretta Vigna Vecchia. Wow, you're going to have to do some spelling there for so, our listeners at home. So Cola Capretta is C-O-L-L-E-C-A-P-R-E-T-T-A. And Venya Vecchia, this is two words, but Venya, V-I-G-N-A, and uh, Vecchia is V-E-C-C-H-I-A. And um, this is a really cool wine because it's um, a Trebbiano Spolatino. Mm. Um, so it's a very specific type of Trebbiano that is specific to Umbria in Italy, which is not super close to the ocean. But... I love this wine. So it's describe it or compare it to something we might know. The Colocoprata Vecchia, it looks like strewn gold. Like it looks like mm. Rapunzel's hair. It's so beautiful. And it smells like salted wet rock with like these floral breezes with like a little bit of pineapple and like wow. a little bit of papaya. It's like delicious. And it tastes like it tastes like um concentrated pineapple with like but like doused in like jasmine and like gasoline which sounds kind of crazy that's a little crazy i'm i'm listen whatever makes carla happy that's that's what's most important but like i wore is it it's you're making it sound a little sweet for my taste it's not sweet it has a it's it's uh, when i say things like pineapple or things like that it's it's more of an acidic it's on the acidic side i like acidic Um, yeah well i do too so for me this wine although i'm describing it in that way because those are the prominent kind of notes all the wines that i enjoy drinking are always going to be on the acidic and salty side like i really like that sort of thing so this sort of wine even though um i'm describing it you know as having these you know it's like green melon and orange peel and it has these these things it it generally is very um it's still salty and has like a really nice bite on it and i think it goes really well with italian fish dishes um well yeah so uh, let's let's what 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 course should I tell Carla to serve this with? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not. Is it, but I'm saying, is it more like a whole roasted fish, or is it more of a red sauce sort of mussels? Sort you of could steel? do either one. This is. I mean, th- the reason I recommended this wine is because you could probably have it 
with all seven. With all seven courses, yeah. It's a really interesting um, I might need white to bring, wine. I might need to bring a case, though. I know. You might need to bring a case. I wanted to, <sighs> This is the one I wanted to bring you today, and you never got back to me. You could have tried it. Um, but it's this is um it's it's really friendly for um all types of fish and also pasta, really really versatile wine and just truly delicious and also special like it's not something that you see everywhere. Um, I mean the the bottles available, but Trebbiano Spolatino is not something that's done very often anymore. So oh. it's cool. Okay, so Carl is doing our feast of the seven fishes, but I'm I'm making prime rib for uh, yeah. my holiday dinner. So I need like a big wine and I, I and in this case i think like a like a magnum like a, maybe a large yeah. format bottle that will stand up to the meaty richness of the prime rib and say it's six or eight people so we can get a big bottle and go around and so yeah what's that bottle of red i want to sort of for me like and i know that this probably isn't what most people think of as a trophy wine because it's a beaujolais but Ooh, it, i like that but it's a moulin avant i would and they come in magnums um you can i'm pretty sure matros does a moulin avant magnum um, but Mulan, I mean, most people think about Beaujolais as very light and fruity and mm -hmm. tart and whatever. But Mulan Avant is um, one of the 10 crews of Beaujolais. And the, the wines from there are much richer and they have a lot more tannin um, than the other, huh. the other ones. But are you still drinking it relatively young? You can drink these aged. Okay. I have one in my fridge, not a Magnum, but I have one in my fridge that has like a note on it. It's like, wait 10 years. Oh, wow. Because like, you can age them. And that's, I mean, and that's a natural one, too. Um, there's a huge myth that you can't age natural wine, and that's just not true either. Um, so yeah, Moulin Avant, you know, you could get one that's, you know, you know, has some age on it, and it would go amazing, I think, with prime rib, while still being drinkable and fun, you know, yeah. because it's still a holiday, you know, meal. I actually, I actually like a a, a red with a little bit more acid and zip because I th I feel I feel find that it sort of cuts through the absolutely fat of, a, of a red meat dish like prime rib, whereas sometimes with those big oaky ones, it's just too much plus too much you absolutely know? well and i think that th i'm so glad that the kind of oak is dying out because for me personally you know those big wines you know like a huge cabernet that also has a lot of oak that just crushes your palate like you yeah. can't really you're not really enjoying your wine or your food when you're doing that i in my personal opinion i think that it, it's overwhelming and just kills your meal so okay. okay so we have this amazing prime rib dinner on new year's eve we wake up it's like oh my god i'm just like really foggy and groggy and new year's day and like oh our friends are having new year's day brunch that'll be nice i'm gonna bring a bottle of something sparkly so we can make some mimosas with their fresh cool. squeezed orange juice that's so again, thoughtful again i don't want to buy bring a really expensive bottle of champagne but i want something that has nice carbonation that'll go well with the oj Totally. Um, so what I would recommend, Prosecco, most Prosecco is made super commercially. And as we were talking about earlier with pet gnats, uh, some people have problems with Prosecco, you know, giving them headaches or whatever. And that's because of that second fermentation of adding the more sugar and the yeast. So there's one, but there's one natural Prosecco producer that I highly recommend um, called Caneva. It's C-A-N-E-V-A. And um, they make a, a wine called Colfondo. That's just awesome, and okay. I, lo I love it. But that's like that's my go-to for like prosecco. Fun. And in general, proseccos are all you can pretty much always say they're always gonna be more affordable than a champagne. Yes, yeah, all sparkling wine is more affordable than champagne. Yes. really, for being honest. Those damn French. I know. Uh, okay, so all right, so I'm bringing that, um, and then finally, oh, you know what? I forgot. I got that other holiday party invite. Yeah. Um, and 
a lot of times I like to bring a bottle of wine. I just want the bottle of wine to look cool because you either they're not going to drink it at the party or someone else opens it. And that person and passes it around and like they don't even. I hate those people. Don't be that person. But that <laughs> happens at a holiday party and like, or yeah. the next morning they wake up and there's a bunch of wine left over that friends brought and you have no recollection of who brought what. However, if you're the person who brings the wine with the really cool label, they're like, oh my god, that's such a cool bond. Oh yeah, Marissa brought that or Adam that's brought true. that. No, I brought it. Can you give me a, a recommendation of like the wine that's as good as the label is cool? Absolutely, and I think that that's really important. I think that there's a weird thing right now where people think they're like, ah, oh, wines just have cool labels, but the wine inside actually sucks, and that's not true. There's see, I, I my contention is that if people have good enough taste to make a cool label, that means they probably have good enough no, taste to make no, a good wine. Yes, no, 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 yes, no, yes, no, yes. I promise you, I promise you, the cool kid wine, mm -hmm. like the cool kids, um, is the gut algu, G U T. O G G A U. Okay. And what Two are the separate. labels like? Their labels are like these beautiful faces, like mm. really, really handsome people. I don't know if you've seen The Big Lebowski. Yeah, no, okay. I've, I've watched movies before. Oh, I, I wasn't sure. You know, I just thought that you like just take photos of food and stuff. Um, so, Julianne Moore, they have one label. I, I don't think it's actually her, but it, the, the illustration looks exactly like Julianne Moore in um, The Big Lebowski. And it's just a, they're just gorgeous faces. They're okay. really, really, then there's like one of like a very handsome man. Hold on, here's, yeah, see? They're just like pretty oh, people. Like, oh, like sort of like, uh, like line drawings, like yeah. black, black and white ones. I'm um, really into like the They almost, they're like a more stylish version of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, yeah. Headshot, what do they call them, head cuts? I yeah. guess that's what they call them, yeah. Uh, Marissa Ross, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies with additional music by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.